Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, artificial intelligence. How soon before robots are smarter than humans? And when that day arrives, what does that mean for us? So you have these trades happening in like one or two milliseconds that, are, that it's even impossible for a human to perceive that short of a time span. And so these, thing, these algorithms are making these decisions in, at that speed. And it's, it's trillions of dollars that are, are shooting around in the system without really any human oversight. My Strange Planet shop is filled to the rafters and bursting with great gear. Check out the Toxic Mail and the Protect Our Power Grid t-shirts. My personal favorite right now, though, is my line of t-shirts celebrating carbon dioxide, the miracle molecule that makes life possible on our planet. But there's more than just t-shirts. There's mugs, phone cases, great hoodies and sweatshirts, tote bags, stickers, and more. The proceeds from the Strange Planet shop goes to support the work I do here. They help make this podcast, Conspiracy Unlimited, and my weekly radio program, The Conspiracy Show, all possible. So, get on up to my Strange Planet shop today. Just go to strangeplanet.ca. Remember, Christmas is coming. It's a strange planet. Get the gear. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Wednesday, just about three weeks until the big day. Around here, we're debating real tree, artificial tree. And quite frankly, we're looking at making a change, moving over to a fake tree. And I'm not happy about it, but I may be outnumbered. We're looking at a fake tree that, honest to goodness, looks pretty real. It even comes with a real live squirrel. Uh, It comes pre-lit. So the string of lights is included. That's a good thing because if I started right now, I might manage to untangle the string of lights we have now just in time for Boxing Day, maybe. (laughs) So maybe the fake tree is the way to go. Uh, And what's more, we may even have it delivered. How bad is that? What's left? I guess we'll get rid of the wood-burning fireplace and just put the TV on the fireplace channel. Not exactly a Charles Dickens Christmas, is it? But no matter. It won't dampen my spirit. I love Christmas. Author-scientist Andrew Smart is standing by from Switzerland to talk about machines, psychedelics, consciousness, the robot apocalypse, the technological singularity, LSD. Wow. Okay, let's settle in. We are about to embark on what promises to be, I think, a pretty remarkable journey over the next three quarters of an hour. Now, here's what Douglas Rushkoff writes about my next guest and his new book. Quote, Andrew Smart deftly shows why it's time for us to think deeply about thinking machines before they begin thinking deeply about us. In his new book, Beyond Zero and One, Machines, Psychedelics, and Consciousness, Andrew Smart weaves together binary numbers, the discovery of LSD, computer programming, and much more to connect the vast but largely forgotten world of psychedelic research with the resurgent field of AI and the attempt to build 
conscious robots. Andrew Smart is a scientist, engineer, interested in consciousness, brains, and technology. His work traverses the boundaries of neuroscience, philosophy, culture, radical politics, and metaphysics. Previously, he published Autopilot, the art and science of doing nothing. Andrew, welcome aboard. How are you? Good. Thank you. Thanks for for inviting me on. (laughs) It sounds like we have a fine connection. You're in, uh, is it Bern, Switzerland? Uh, I'm in Basel. Okay. Terrific. Now, this is interesting because everybody's all talking about AI these days, the robotic apocalypse, the the technological singularity. Stephen Hawking is warning that this could be the end of mankind. Ray Kurzweil, I believe, says 2045, when machines or robots become smarter than humans, it's something wicked this way comes, to to quote uh, Ray Bradbury. Uh Uh, And then, so I I, I open your book, and you actually, you take rather interesting departure point. You start talking about the discovery of LSD right there in Switzerland by Albert Hoffman, an organic chemist, which I thought, wow, where is he going with this? (laughs) (laughs) First, let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about the discovery of LSD and why you began there. Um. Sure. Well, I think it's a, I mean, it's a really fascinating um, history, and I think it's um, kind of forgotten in, in sort of mainstream discourse. And I would say even within um, neuroscientific circles and uh, in science in general, it's, it's largely been kind of suppressed or um, because the, the drug is so controversial. So you, you, there's only, it's only recently that um, kind of a new generation of researchers has has gone back to the the drug, and you know at the time when it was first synthesized, it was it was really kind of greeted as a revolution, and uh, psychiatry and neuroscience um, really thought this was like a, a huge breakthrough um, because before LSD, um, science really had no idea that brain chemistry had anything to do with moods or perception or consciousness or anything. And, and it, when, when they realized, like, oh, this molecule, you know, radically transforms your, <laughs> your conscious experience, then that, that actually led to the development of Prozac and other, you know, antidepressants. And the whole, the whole range of psychiatric drugs were developed, you know, it, directly as, as a result of that, uh, of the discovery of LSD. So it's it's a really fascinating history, and there was a huge amount of research done um, after the the drug was first um, synthesized, and and the story behind it is really interesting because it was really by accident. Yes, um, as so many great he, discoveries are. Yeah, yeah, and he you know he was trying to develop a respiratory treatment. Um, this is in the early 1940s. Yeah, 1943. Uh, dur- dur- you know, during right during the war, which and it, it's amazing that they were still operating quite normally. At that time, and he, yeah, the the story is he accidentally got some in his system somehow when he was working on, he was working with this uh, rye, this fungus that grows on rye, um, and synthesizing different variants of of compounds from from the source, um, and then yeah, one afternoon he he got, you know, he started to see colors and got kind of dizzy, and and he first thought it was uh, because of of chloroform that he was using as a solvent. Um, and but then he he kind of suspected like you know it could have been this this LSD that he had just synthesized and so he came back the next day and tried a self experiment he just he made some more and he ate it which is you know kind of uh, unheard of <laughs> today in in drug research <laughs> like nobody makes an, a new thing that nobody's ever tried before and just eats it 
Um, Pretty brave. (laughs) Pretty brave of him. Yeah. But it was the most minute trace he could make because he didn't. He wanted, I guess, kind of a baseline. Well, yeah, he thought he made a, a, you know just 250 micrograms, which he thought wouldn't do anything, um, but it turns out that's a huge, you know, that's a, a really big dose dose of it, and and he then he had this incredible experience, and, and first he thought he was dying and going insane, um, when, when sort of at the peak of the experience, because he had obviously n- nobody had ever experienced something like this before, except of course, um, you know, in in ancient or in you know other other social groups that use uh, psychedelics as part of their religious um, activities. So, but then, yeah, he, uh, but then gradually this, this um, insanity feeling or this death feeling um, went away. And then he kind of had this, you know, tremendous euphoria and this kind of breakthrough um, for for several hours where he he felt like he um, had this kind of transcendent experience. Um, Yeah. And so that's kind of the, the background uh, to that discovery, um, and so I guess yeah, the, <clears throat> I, I was I started off because I, I so there's there's two sort of parallel interests of mine that you know one is is robots and art and artificial intelligence, and then on the other side is uh, my background is in cognitive science, um, and I've done a lot of work in brain imaging labs and things, and I've always been really interested in philosophy of mind. Um, and so, yeah, one day I just, I kind of, I, I've been, I had been following this, you know, like you mentioned, the whole AI resurgence and, and all this discussion. And then one day, and I've I had a long interest in philosophy of mind. And then uh, um, one day I just, it, it kind of popped in my head, like, well, what if, you know, what if, a, if we really reach this singularity and you have these super, these, you know, human-like and artificial intelligences, you know, could they have altered states of consciousness? And, and if... If not, why? You know, I thought it opened up really interesting problems. Like, absolutely, not, it does. It yeah. does. And at the same time, really, I, I, I get the sense, and you can you can disabuse me if you if you need to, but you're not really sounding the alarm bells in terms of AI the way many others are. You're not necessarily talking about a robot apocalypse quite yet, because, uh, well, and this sort of harkens back to the LSD studies, which sort of gave us a new understanding of what consciousness is, and then therefore, by extension, what it really means to be a human. So in order for robots to become essentially human or smarter than humans, there are a number of other steps they need to take, and how do we get from there? Well, it might take a lot longer than Ray Kurzweil's 2045 prediction. I want to talk about LSD a little bit more and and ask you whether or not because this is really central to your your theory, I guess, about whether or not we need to be worried about AI or a robot apocalypse, as it's being called now in certain quarters. And that is whether LSD improves or increases uh, our perception, human perception. I think it's, a, it's definitely an open empirical question that's actively being uh, researched, and I think there's there's some really exciting new um, studies coming out uh, where we can finally kind of peer, you know, inside the 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 brain while it's on uh, hallucinogenic uh, molecules, and and really, um, you know, see exactly what the changes are in, um, you know, the <clears throat> the the brain activity using you know using modern uh, brain imaging techniques, and I don't I don't know that anyone has done a really serious study on on perception and um, 
you know, whether whether performance on sort of traditional psychological tasks improves uh, on LSD or what the effects are. Um, it, it's primarily been researched in uh, psychotherapy or in, in therapy situations back in the 60s. There was a huge amount of research on, you know, helping people overcome alcoholism um, and anxiety and things like that. Yeah, they're using ayahuasca down in in, uh, Central and South America, very controversial therapy, but there have been some high-profile celebrities who have gone down there, used ayahuasca to to do just that. Yeah, yeah, and I I think it's, um, it's, especially in those those cultures where they have... um, uh, like like really a cultural sort of support system for those experiences you know to into, like it, it, it's kind of it, it's a rite of passage or it's a it's a religious ceremony so people in those cultures have a cultural context in which you know to fit these experiences whereas I think uh, for us in the in the you know Western world we we definitely don't have any kind of um, myths or or stories in which to integrate what these what these drugs do um so of course i think the natural thing to do with it is is try to you know help with emotional problems or psychological problems but as as far as like the accuracy or the you know if it if it allows you to see anything uh better uh without the drug then with it i i don't i'm not you know i'm not sure of that or how that would be demonstrated but i think the you know the subjective part of it is is very important and that's it that's very hard to study of course scientifically because it's it's different for everybody um but we do we are starting to get evidence and see exactly what these molecules do um for example to the serotonin system um and how kind of the the brain network that is generating your normal everyday experience um you know pretty much disintegrates <laughs> on on LSD or on uh, and all all of the hallucinogenics are are very chemically similar it's just it's just really minor modifications to different um bonds that make up the the family of of these kinds of drugs right and they are the there was a there was a period you mentioned the 1960s and then after that a lot of these drugs were became prohibited there was yep. a period of about 40 years when it was absolutely verboten to study uh, these sorts of things. And then I went down to UCLA Medical Center and interviewed Dr. Charles Grobe, um, who was using magic mushrooms or synthesized uh, magic mushrooms to help ease the end-of-life anxiety with cancer patients. Yeah. And was having some absolutely remarkable um, results. And um, it, it, it sort of leads to the whole discussion about whether or not when you talk to people that have used magic mushrooms or LSD, um, whether or not they have a spiritual experience or not. But it almost begs the, or leads into a discussion of whether or not consciousness is a product of the mind or exists outside the mind. Yeah. And I think you, you quickly bump right up into these really, you know, these ancient philosophical debates uh, that are still ongoing. Um, and despite all of our progress and all of our, you know, and, and despite this this new AI craze, um, we, we, you know, the, these things aren't solved. You know, there's no definitive uh, way to say one way or the other. I mean, I, of course, I have my own ideas, and every, you know, a lot of people have. There's a lot. There's a lot of different theories, but I don't think there's a broad consensus about what, even scientifically about what consciousness is and where it is, um, you know, whether it's inside the brain or outside the brain or, um, 
you know, there's and there's a really serious um, study of it now within neuroscience, and it's finally kind of accepted within neuroscience and psychology to study consciousness, and that's that's a very recent thing as well because before it was kind of a taboo um, topic within within academic research about about the brain and the mind because it was too diffuse and too fuzzy and ill-defined, and you know, people could, wanted to study memory and attention and perception. You know, these very uh, easy to define and easy to measure things, but <clears throat> I think finally, with you know, with the help of technology, of course, we're able now to uh, get you know develop a, a very serious um, science of consciousness, you know, within within neuroscience, within like mainstream neuroscience, and I think that's very exciting. Um, so I think it's it's a very interesting contrast to this. Um, I guess you would call it hype, you know, from, from like you mentioned before, like Google and when, when these um, kind of breakthroughs happen or these, these developments like the chatbot or um, d- d- different things where people go, wow, uh, we're really almost creating artificial intelligence and it's this, wow, it's, think, it's really thinking. Um, I, I think when you compare that to what's, I think we really still underestimate what's going on in the brain. And that was, that was part of the purpose of the book, too, was really to point out, like, for every advance we make, it kind of opens up new questions, and we realize, wow, it's still extremely mysterious. Right. And it, to, to reduce humanity to a, you know, a complex computational uh, you know, process that that's what that's the sum that's the be all and end all of what our brains are and our minds is is really, um, you know, a disservice. But let me get back to then the connection, and you've sort of alluded to this, but let's nail it down here: the connection between LSD with machine consciousness. Yeah, and I, so I basically what I was looking at was, you know, in within AI, there's there's for sure a uh, like a, a theme that the, the the goal is to create an artificial mind and and it would really be it would it would first match you know humans and it would be indistinguishable from a human mind and then it would quickly you know advance to this what they call a, a super intelligence that would be vastly uh superior to us in in all these different domains and so i i started to to think about what you know, well, our our human mind is one of the the main things about it is is that we hallucinate and we hallucinate in a lot of different circumstances, like with schizophrenia or, uh, for example, if you're uh, above twenty thousand feet or w- without uh, oxygen, for example, like mountaineers, and there's all there's all these really interesting um, altered states of of the human mind, um, and so I thought if you know if you really have this artificial mind, and it's that that's also a very uh controversial term but then is you know does that mean that it it should be able to do all the things that our minds can do and so I was just it, the idea was to ask this question of well, once you have this mind and it's um it's human level to to me that also means that it should it should be able to have these altered states because that's a fundamental uh, aspect of our minds. And then I looked more into the the research on hallucinations and things, and there's even it, it turns out that um, you could consider our our everyday kind of experience as not um, totally 
different from hallucinating, really. So the the difference is is more in degrees versus um, it's that it's these distinguishable states of I'm hallucinating versus I'm having a normal experience. It's the same. It's really the same physiology um, and the same brain mechanisms that are generating hallucinations and generating what what you would call normal experience. Um, and I think that that aspect of our minds is is you know pretty much ignored in AI. And and they, I mean, they're they're kind of just following um, a very, I, I I don't want to say crude, but kind of a, sim, a simplistic, um, under, you know, understanding of what the brain is doing, and then these new algorithms come out, and and the hype kind of becomes, oh, it's doing it just like a brain, and and so part of the point of the book is like, well, we we still don't really know what the brain is doing, um, and and as what we do know, it's quite different from what. Um, AI is still is still doing, and yeah, and I think part of the yeah, like you said, the the purpose of the book was to call into question these um, these timelines that have been proposed that were were just decades away from real artific- a real artificial mind. Uh, and, and, oh, you, go ahead. Sorry, you, sorry you, you illustrate the the point quite nicely with. Um, the late great Robin Williams and an appearance he made on Inside the Actors Studio, and I remember this episode. Uh, and he had the host just sort of, <laughs> he just sort of gave up, threw up his hands, and said, "Okay, just take it away," yeah. <laughs> because Robin Williams went on one of his patented sort of stream of consciousness um, escapades, the way that uh, his mentor Jonathan Winters used to do. I, I, I remember as a kid on the Tonight Show and just being amazed at the connections that they would make in such in a rapid way and they would just take something it, it was well, just the art of improv but you know to the power of 10 but to, to talk to me about you know why that episode with Robin Williams on Inside the Actors Studio made it into this book and why it was had such a profound effect on you well I, I think it really fundamentally illustrates kind of the um, the gulf I guess between um, you know what these what the chatbot is doing, for example, and what a human, what a real human can do still. And, and, and I don't want to suggest that we'll never get there to making an artificial Robin Williams. Like, I, I don't want to say that's impossible based on first principles, because I, I, you know, I don't think we, we know, and I don't think we can say at this point. But I, I think the, the interesting thing was that hit the, the way you, I think you can get a glimpse of what the human mind is doing because we, you know, we all we're all capable of things like that. Not, not obviously, not like you said, we're, we're order, many orders of magnitude less funny than Robin Williams, but we all have these associations and these vague um, intuitions, and we still don't know what what how the brain is accomplishing that. I mean, there's lots of ideas, but um, we still don't know wh- how that kind of communication can happen among you know among a group of people. That where you have one person who's kind of guiding all of our attention and our consciousness to these different relationships among things that we never, that maybe we're subconsciously aware of, but then it takes a, a kind of a genius like Robin Williams to connect these things, and then you 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 have these moments of of humor where you are, all these things are connected, and you go, oh my gosh, that's that's hilarious, and he can rat, he can just cycle through these. Things. And partially it's, of course, training that he's, you know, spent his life uh, performing this way. But partially it's, it's just something about the way his brain is built, um, that he can use these vague, um, weak, you know, very weak connections among things that, 
that normally don't appear to us. And when they do appear to us, they're very funny because they resolve a lot of ambiguity and things. And right now, you know, even these chatbots um, can't, they, you know, can't cope with any kind of, of these, uh, these types of relationships that, for example, that Robin Williams could connect. Um, we just, we just don't understand how that's, how that's working in the, in the brain yet. Right. And we don't, and we don't know how to do that with an algorithm either. No, we can't produce Robin Williams with a series of ones and zeros. And, and what's kind of, I, I don't know about ironic, but, um, you know, we thought initially that Robin Williams took his life because of depression. And then we learned from his widow, uh, that in fact he had, he was battling a debilitating, neurodegenerative disease, which is, is actually it's quite common, um, a form of dementia, I guess similar to Alzheimer's, but it's called um, LBD, or dementia with a Louis, is it Louis Bodies, LBD? Ah, so, yeah, yeah, I, I had read that, yes. So that he essentially was losing his mind and there was nothing he could do about it. Yeah, I mean, that's a terrifying, you know, I, I think that's, a, you know, everyone, that's a terrifying um, thing to have happen if you were I, I think it's probably one of the most terrifying diseases out there are these neurodegenerative diseases. So, I, it's, I, of course, if you're someone who's used to performing or, or thinking in that way and that starts to disappear, I can imagine it's just it's overwhelming and devastating you know, to go from sort of the pinnacle of, of human uh, you know, humor and, and improvisation to not to, – maybe the you – know, the outcome of that disease might be not, you know, not being able to tie your shoes or not even, you know what I mean? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, so, but you know, just being on the cusp of losing one's mind. I mean, it almost was if, as if he was sort of straddling that, maybe his whole life, which almost fed into his particular genius. Who knows? I'm not a neuroscientist, uh, but we will continue to delve into consciousness, what makes us human, and why we need not necessarily sound the alarms regarding artificial intelligence. More of my conversation with Andrew Smart when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. I want to tell you about something I discovered recently called Carbon 60. I call it the Miracle Molecule. Now, you might remember an interview I did recently with a researcher, Chris Burris, who's looking to help people who experience pain, inflammation, loss of sleep, or lost mental acuity with his new C60 company, C60Evo.com. He has a product which is a consumable form of Carbon 60 called ESS60 that's been proven in peer-reviewed, published research to extend the lifespan of test rats by 90% while allowing them to live tumor-free. That's pretty amazing. Those rats were given the C60Evo.com formula. The formula is a powerful antioxidant, 172 times more powerful than vitamin C, and it's known to be a powerful anti-inflammatory. C60 is based on Nobel Prize winning chemistry. I highly recommend ESS60. The mighty Aphrodite and I take a tablespoon every morning, and we're both pain-free and sleeping better than ever. Discover the benefits of Carbon 60. I call it the miracle molecule, ESS60, from C60Evo.com. Now, make sure to use the coupon code RS1SPEC. That's RS1SPEC for a special Christmas discount. 
Buy today at c60evo.com. That's c60evo.com. And don't forget the code RS1SPEC. This product has not been assessed by the FDA and is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure. If you have a medical concern, please consult your healthcare provider. Theoretical physicists say that there is as many as 12 hyperdimensions. Here are just three of them. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Pretty cool, huh? Uh, here's an extra one. Conspiracy Unlimited. Hey, how about one more? Conspiracy Unlimited. And the great thing is we have six hyperdimensions left. Conspiracy Unlimited. Five. Andrew Smart is here talking about robots and artificial intelligence. I love the way you um, your chapters are in, in binary code. And uh, one of the chapters starts off with, or it's titled, A Robot Walks Into a Bar. Uh, is there a punchline to that joke? <laughs> <laughs> no, not. I just, you know, I kind of wanted to, you know, bring up this, this relationship between humor and, and AI. Um, right. You know, I, and, and there's for sure been attempts to make uh, funny, <clears throat> funny chatbots or funny, and a, a, a lot of the, you know, like you said, a lot of the answers that these things give are inadvertently funny, you know, because they're, it's almost like speaking to a toddler or something. Where, where, or right. Well, you that, you you illustrate it beautifully because uh, people may re- recall IBM's Watson. Uh, it was it was programmed to to win at Jeopardy, uh, and some of the responses it gave were kind of bizarre. Uh, tell tell us tell us a little bit about about that. Do you recall the? Uh, yeah, well, you know, he, for example, I, you know, there was a, a, a Jeopardy clue um, uh, about, uh, you know, about, Jane, or about 19th century novelists, and, uh, and Watson came back with the, you know, said, what is uh, the Pet Shop Boys? Oh, it was a question, uh, yeah, that was about Oliver Twist, I think. Yeah, 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 and, and he, you know, and, and, and you, you can kind of work out, like, maybe what, you know, how that came up, but you, you I, I, at least I laughed out loud when I heard that, um, and and what's interesting to me is that he <clears throat> is this this idea that he's you know he can be really accurate like ninety percent of the time but then when he's wrong he's just absurdly wrong you know and I I find that very uh, an interesting difference because when when we're wrong um, we're kind of wrong in these sophisticated ways or in these you know in these very uh, ways that you you can deduce almost what rules we're following to arrive at. The wrong answer, and it's ma- and it's plausible, um, and and I think we st- we still don't know exactly how the brain um, combines these these things to rule out implausible answers. Because there's a kind of a you mentioned in the book, there's kind of a fuzzy logic that we humans have uh, that if we if the Pet Shop Boys, and I'm not sure how Watson arrived at that. I mean, the, the clue was Oliver Twist, and he came up with Pet Shop Boys. I'm not sure how he arrived at that, uh, but if that for whatever reason, if Pet Shop Boys were to, to come up in our brains, we would eliminate it using this fuzzy logic because we know it's impossible. But an, an, an AI can't, doesn't have that fuzzy logic, so they're just going to come out with it. Right. And, they, and, and the other thing a lot of people point out is they don't have yet, of course, um, our, first of all, our, our evolutionary history of you know, you know, millions of years and of uh, of kind of inherited genetic intelligence or or knowledge that's that we get 
uh, through DNA. And then also they don't have a life experience yet of growing up in a culture. Um, and of course, I think, you know, AI is taking this seriously and, and trying to grow robots, so to speak, as a, as a child does and, and learns. But, but they, even these very powerful systems like Watson, um, you know, just has no, no access to cultural semantics or like what our, 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 our shared sort of cultural meaning about things. And so, yeah, these, these things that we, we somehow automatically have access to this vast amount of, of cult- shared cultural knowledge. And, you know, if, if you're a, of a certain age and have grown up in, in a certain country or, or certain culture, you know, you know, inst- you can recall and recognize instantly what the Pet Shop Boys are and you know who Oliver Twist is. And it would, it would just never, the, the relationship between the two is, is, uh, is not something that occurs to us. But he's, you know, he's rifling through literally billions of answers and somehow his algorithms return that this is the most like this is the likeliest answer in relationship to the question. But I think it reveals that he's still just, or he or it, you know, Watson is just brute force um, running through all these all these things and then measuring kind of the probability that is this, you know, what what is the m- most probable answer, not what is the most meaningful answer. And I think that's kind of the crucial um, difference still. Right. You, we cannot be reduced to an algorithm. Yeah. But, okay, so AIs may never be fully human. They may never get sarcasm, like Sheldon Cooper, uh, or irony, uh, but they could still be a threat, no? I mean, they could still be, they, their computations could be so much faster. And in fact, what may make them so dangerous is the fact that they lack that humanity. Yeah, and and I um, there, there's a great quote um, uh, by by an AI researcher who says, you know, AI uh, doesn't love you, it doesn't hate you, but you're made of atoms that it could use for something else. <laughs> and, and <laughs> oh, so, geez, that is sinister. Yeah, and and I think that's the fundamental um, risk that that like people like Stephen Hawking and Elon Musk see is that. If you create the, you know, maybe they won't be human-like or they won't be conscious necessarily, but they'll, they'll, they'll go on this kind of runaway course of, um, develop, you know, connecting themselves and developing into things, and and they don't necessarily even have goals of their own, but they're just, from the way that they're designed, there might be these unintended consequences. Um, where they become very, very dangerous, maybe even before they would reach anything like human level uh, intelligence that that would be difficult for us to control if we're not very careful in how we design these systems. Um, so that it's, yeah, it, it, I think I think the risk is um, maybe not so scary as these, um, you know, that they would become evil and try to kill us. It would be that they would, um, th- there could be unintended consequences of developing these super intelligent systems. Well, um, I mean, it, I suppose if you are just coldly logical, uh, you, you could arrive at sort of a Malthusian philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the good of the many outweighs the good of the few and so forth. And, and us, for us in the West who thrive on uh, individualism and, and so forth, uh, you know, that the rights of the individual are sacrosanct, uh, I can see where that is going to be a problem. 
I mean, they are now using uh, AI in theaters of war. Now, there is a human overseer at the moment, but at some point, who knows? I mean, that that human element may be removed, and uh, then we have AIs making these value calls or these judgments uh, based on computations and algorithms. And then I think we have a problem. Yeah, and I, I think that's the, the big risk um, is that we, exactly if you, if you give these systems uh, life and death uh, decision-making power. Um, and on, on the other hand, you know, you, you have the situation where a lot of these algorithms, um, when they're used as parts of systems, become, it becomes so complicated that there isn't, there isn't one person who really understands what's going on. We, we, we've talked about uh, the, the potential threat of, of AIs. And it's interesting you, you point out, you know, this was a, um, a very strange year, the last couple of years, really, in terms of the stock market. Uh, it, it seems no matter how bad the news gets, the stock market keeps going up, 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 up. Uh, up is down. I mean, there is no value in the market. It's there's it's really there are no fundamentals, and and yet I mean the markets are essentially run by algorithms, artificial intelligence. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, I think it's interesting, and and like you you kind of allude to that. There's a huge disconnect between sort of the real life economy and the stock market, <laughs> and I think it's because uh, it is it is. It's to a larger and larger degree more and more automated. Um, so you have these trades happening in in milliseconds, you know, like one or two milliseconds. That are, that it's even impossible for a human to perceive that uh, short of a time span. And so these thing, these algorithms are making these decisions in, at that speed. Um, and it's you know it's it's trillions of dollars that are are shooting around in the system without really any human oversight. Um, and and it like I mentioned before, it's far too complex for any one person to be able to look at it and, and tell a story about what's going on. So I think you ha- you have this the stock market the stock market is becoming kind of uh, reflexive or it it reacts to itself um, because these al- you know these re- these algorithms just fight each other. Um, and I, and I point out some research in the book about how they are just. Um, they they go into these circles and herding behavior that that's even more extreme than what human investors do, um, because you know they lack ki- you know kind of the the irrationality that is you know good actually for humans to balance things out is lacking from these things, um, and and I, I talk about one uh, researcher in the book who 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 likens the behavior of the stock market to earth to aftershocks of an earthquake, so something. You know, something will move the market um, that may or may not be related to anything in the external world, and then the algorithms will react, and it'll, it'll look kind of like you know these aftershocks where it goes up and down and up and down and up and down, but it's it's not reacting to anything in the world; it's just reacting to itself. <laughs> so it's this fascinating kind of a crazy situation. It is a synthetic beast. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. you worked at Honeywell Aerospace uh, yep. for a while, and I'd be I'd, I'm very curious. Uh, you were hired as a cognitive scientist and human factors researcher. What is going on in terms of AI uh, and these, you know, the Boeing 77s that we're flying around in? Well, the, I mean, I, I would hesitate to call the automation on, on airplanes AI. Um, it, it, it's, it's certainly, you know, very smart software, um, but it's not – we're not yet – 
the automation on airplanes is, an, it, I guess it is making decisions. You know, it's, um, you can turn on the autopilot and it will follow uh, your flight path, you know, uh, for you. But you have to still program the flight path <laughs> into, the, into the flight management system. So, but I, I, there's definitely a, a huge push toward automated, um, or, you know, a- autonomous flying vehicles so that you would just get in and say something like, uh, go to L.A., and, and they would just do it. And you wouldn't, you know what I mean? Right, right. Uh, or, the, and, or Google coming out with a, a car that you, know, you don't have to drive. Exactly, yeah. Um, and, and that technology is really, I think, that, that kind of technology is probably closer than a lot of people might think. You know, that's, that's something that, that works already, uh, at least for cars. And, and for airplanes, for example, you know, with, with really, really crowded airspace, the automation is much better, actually, at dealing with the separation between other airplanes than humans are. You know, so now we need to make sure there's a, a lot of space between uh, airplanes. But, th- but that's kind of the limiting factor of, of how many airplanes you can cram, you know, into an approach. Uh, but if you let computers do that, you, you could safely uh, cram a lot more airplanes <laughs> into the same space, which, you know, may or may not be. Yeah, you just want to keep your eyes closed during the approach. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. We mentioned Ray Kurzweil earlier, and he's sort of at the forefront of the transhumanist movement, uh, which I have to be honest, I've, I've, I've talked to a number of proponents of transhumanism, and uh, there's something that just does not sit well with me on many levels. Uh, but what about when we were talking about a hybrid? Uh, so you take a human mind, fully human uh, consciousness, and then you begin to merge it with AI that, that would basically ramp up our computational abilities uh, you know, to an X factor beyond, beyond, beyond. Um, I mean, is that... Are we headed in that direction, and is there, are you concerned at all about that? I, I mean, I think we are for sure, and I, and I, I do talk about in the book um, Miguel Nicolelis um, at Duke in, in North Carolina. Um, you know, he he's really already developed kind of working uh, brain machine interfaces, or where I, I don't know if you've if you've seen it, but he, you know, his team made a basically a robot arm uh, that's controllable. Uh, through implants in a monkey's brain. Yes, yes. <laughs> so the, mon- the monkey learned how to, with its brain waves, you know, just control this arm that could reach out and grab a juice or whatever. Um, and I, I think that, you know, that, and it's interesting, and I bring him up a lot in the book is because he doesn't believe that the mind is computable or that it runs on computation, and yet he's at the forefront of actually uh, making these kind of hybrid brain-machine systems. So I, I don't think... Um, I, I think that kind of technology will just continue to progress where we can implant things in the brain as tools and the brain kind of adapts to having this thing in it well, and, you and think about how to use it as a tool. Sure. Think about people with spinal cord injuries. Uh, they yeah. have, they're quadriplegics and, and with this type of technology, they can, they can move their legs and their arms again. Yeah. But I, I think the other the, – the dimension or the it, – it's one thing for, for – to, that we can decode um, intentions, you know, move like motor intentions, um, and translate those into control signals for a robot. You know, you, you, you take the electrical activity that's generated in a certain part of the brain, um, <clears throat> and you record that, and then you, you analyze that data, and you interpret whether 
the intention is to grab or move left or right. And those those kinds of, I would say, simple um, commands are, are one thing. The, the, the idea that you could actually enhance your own, you know, for example, let's say you're trying to remember uh, some historical fact or trying to figure out a math problem that, or, or even access one of your own experiences from your life and, and what kind of implant you know, or technology we could use to assist you or, or to assist our, our brain yet is very, I think that is very far away where you, you'd have some technology in your brain that would, would help your memory and help your right. uh, ability to, to do very human, but, but primarily subjective things is, um, right. in other I words, that's another level. <laughs> yes. We're, so you would suggest, I'm gathering, that we are a quantum leap from re-sleeving our consciousness and achieving virtual immortality. Yes, I, I think that, um, yes, I, I, I would say that that is um, a huge, a huge challenge because we, while we know we, we can more or less um, work out, you know, how, when we are intending to grab, you know, something <laughs> with our arm and we, we can map out on the brain or where in the brain that, that is more or less happening, you know, like a, uh, an internal thought or like uh an experience is something that is, and, and even Nicolelis writes about this. It's it's not a computable state of the brain, uh, in principle. And there's there's a lot of uh, detailed reasons uh, for this. But uh, yeah, I think, like you said, I think that's a that's a huge leap. <laughs> well, I can rest easy now. I'll have a good night's <laughs> sleep. But you know, I'm I'm so glad that you came on, and uh, because there is so much hype out there, even from. Great minds like Stephen Hawking, and and it seems like every month now, uh, we're getting uh, some uh, someone you know in higher learning or the halls of academia ringing the the alarm bells about AI and the the the, the singularity and the robot apocalypse. Um, but uh, you have really, I think, uh, turned down the heat on the burner on that and provided. Uh, some illumination, and I thank you. And, and congratulations on Beyond Zero and One. It's enlightening, but it's also good fun. Thank you. Thanks a lot for having me on. It was, it was a lot of fun. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back with a few words about an upcoming episode. If you want to support my work here at Strange Planet, please consider becoming an official donor. It's easy. Just go to patreon.com forward slash strange planet. There are several donation tiers to choose from, from a dollar per month to $50 a month. For the month of December, new donors at the $10, $20, and $50 per month tier receive a free mug from my Strange Planet shop. Donors in the $20 tier also have their names appear on a crawl during the YouTube live stream of my weekly radio program, The Conspiracy Show. And donors in the $50 tier receive a special on-air thank you on my radio program. Whatever you give, your support helps keep my radio program and this podcast going. Help me pursue the truth wherever it leads. Patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Thank you and God bless. Coming up next time on Conspiracy Unlimited, Carbon 60. 
Its discovery earned three scientists the Nobel Prize in Chemistry. Now it's believed this miracle molecule might just unlock the mystery to drastic life extension. Just ask the rats that consumed it and lived 90% longer. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. 